I think if we are unable to decode, or if you want to say to deconstruct, if you will, images, then we have lost one of our human faculties. Now, you could, you're quite free to disagree with the image. You can say, okay, I get the message. I get the message. I disagree with it. Fine, but I'm getting the message. So if, if you show, for example, a Christian image and you put on the title of Jesus, Lord, you're putting the title of Caesar on a peasant from Galilee, and that's called high treason. So if we can't read this stuff, if we think, oh, did it really happen? Yeah, it really happened that certain people in the first century looked at Jesus and said, basically, this is our Caesar. That's why he's going to end up dead. The Romans did not crucify people for nonviolence. They crucified people for nonviolent resistance to their system. So I think we have lost half our human faculties if we don't know either to look at an image, and we're not looking at an image because we're on a podcast, so I've been describing an image to you in words, and describing it will have nothing like the effect it will have when you look at it. Your hands that bind me as you find me, it never lets me go. The love that meets us lets your sweetness show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Happy Easter, if you're into that. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. <laughs> and oh man, talk about a Easter Easter treat here! Oh, you guys have no idea. So we we have a few episodes that are going to come out back to back. I know we haven't done that in a minute, um, but we have a couple. And the reason that they're going to be back to back is because number one, this one is a, a special Easter treat for you guys, and then uh, we have another one next week. That I didn't even know that. We're talking. Yeah, surprise. I love it. I love it when I find out what's happening around here. <laughs> as we, that's as, fantastic. As we sit in my office that is in complete disarray right now. Our, our lives are in disarray right now. <laughs> that's the truth. <sighs> the deconstruction is taking over our actual lives. <laughs> our lives are being deconstructed as we speak. So this, this is super, super special. And one of the things that I love about this, just for a quick little side anecdote, mm. my 22-year-old self would be so pissed that I was oh. talking to this guy. Oh, yeah. And then my, my 30X-year-old self, I'm not going to discount. Can I go throw that out no, there? I'm 36. <laughs> my 36-year-old self is like eating it like ice cream. Yeah. Just devouring the deliciousness of everything we talked about. Oh, and, and when you have that moment where you're interviewing somebody else and they reference the other person that you just interviewed. Which just happened. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's, this is just good stuff. You're like, there's, yeah, we read that. There's some magic happening around here. Yeah, so this guy, all right, so he is he is one of uh the um I don't know, like one of the big big daddies, heavy hitters of oh, yeah, Jesus Seminar, historical Jesus. Like yeah. we are talking about like balancing out Jesus scholarship. You know, there's a whole spectrum. Anytime you're looking at scholarship, there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum. Yeah. And, and what is this place all about, John? We are all about the spectrum. We're all about the spectrum. We're all about listening to the spectrum. So, you know, yeah. if you've got NT right on a few times, handful of times, 
going to be on more, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. You got to have John freaking Dominic freaking Crossan yeah. on because you can't get Marcus Borg. No, that's true. Because <laughs> he's dead. He did. <laughs> um, but, so sad. I mean, this guy uh, right there with Borg. I mean, this is fantastic. What a, what a pull. And, and this is all you, John. And he's definitely on our list of uh, most awesome accents. So we're, oh we're my, collecting those. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> And, and so give them a brief overview because yeah. we'll just let this episode speak for itself because it's Easter and this is going to be a simple one because Easter is all about resurrection. So, so John Dominic Cross, and I, I first encountered his work. There's a really great book out by um, actually a Trinity Seminary uh, professor, um, uh, uh, Powell, uh, Dr. Powell, who, who has a book out on the oh, historical Powell. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. He's got a book out on the historical Jesus. And what he does is he, he summarizes by chapter uh, the different um, positions on the historical Jesus by all these different Jesus scholars. So N.T. Wright and Borg and Crossan and, and um, all sorts of different theologians. So um, Crossan, though, is a professor emeritus at DePaul University. He's widely regarded as one of the foremost historical Jesus scholars of our current generation. Um, and he's, uh, he's got a bunch of other books out that we'll have in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But the book that he wrote, um, he actually put this together with his wife, Sarah, mm-hmm. Um, she's a veteran photographer and visual artist who um, they were touring through uh, Europe, uh, specifically Eastern Europe, and they were taking uh, photos of these just super old uh, churches and cathedrals. And he talks about the fact that um, some of them were so small they could only go in. They were more like caves, really. Yeah. And they could only file in uh, single file, and they would take just copious, am- copious amounts of pictures. And it wasn't until later when they actually had time to sit down and, and review them on their computers that he started to realize that the depiction of the resurrection in these Eastern churches was very different than what we encounter in the Western churches. Might be something worth looking into in an, in a beautiful coffee table book. And if you're an art enthusiast oh my and you're a nerd and you want to talk about the central tenet of the Christian faith, which is the resurrection, and you want to get your mind blown Holy cow. and your soul soothed, listen to this episode and then go pick up this gorgeous book and enjoy it. Yeah, resurrecting Easter, how the West lost and the East kept the original Easter vision. Um, you can't, I think he says this on the episode, you can't do the Kindle version. It will not do it justice. No, you need the hard copy book and color pictures and just spring for it. It's worth it. People are going to, people are going to think you're really hoity toity if you've got this book around. You're like an art buff. Seriously. Resurrection nerd. This is good stuff, guys. And uh, you know what else is good stuff? Our live show in Denver. Yes. Coming up. Coming up. So when this comes out, we will be about four weeks out and on the live show. And I'm happy to say that I know we're not going to be alone in that ballroom because no. a whole bunch of people have bought tickets. No, at least two people will be there besides <laughs> us. I know like a bunch of people. This <laughs> is going to be so much fun, dude. <laughs> so we still have tickets left as of the recording of this intro. Uh, you can either get them through our website, thedeconstructionist.com, click on the events tab and we've got a link there. Um, you can go directly to Eventbrite and just type in The Deconstructionist Live, and our link will pop up. It is April 28th. It's a Saturday evening. Um, we've got this beautiful venue booked. It's apparently really close to Coors Field in Denver, Colorado, and it's going to be a beautiful time. We have a little music. Um, Adam and I have some some great material prepared, and we have even some special surprises in, in store. For, so for those of you that that show up, and 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 uh, buy a ticket to the show, and they are very very cheap. It's only ten bucks. It's just to help us recoup some of the cost of the venue. Um, you're going to be glad you did. I think. I think you are going to be very glad you did. <laughs> we're going to give out some free hugs. Free hugs. Lots of free hugs. Yes. And we're stoked to see you guys there. But for now, 
kick back, get in the Easter spirit. Yeah. Get some, get some peeps and some Cadbury <laughs> eggs. Gross. I know, so gross, right? <laughs> get some Cadbury eggs. Yes. Or at least some like Reese, uh, some Reese peanut butter eggs. Those are good. And enjoy our next guest, who is John freaking Dominic, Dominic freaking Crossin. Well, Mr. John Dominic Crossan, or as uh, you've told us to call you, Dom, thank you so much for being with us tonight on the Deconstructionist Podcast. John and I are, are big fans. We're nerds, and we, we just love your work, and uh, reading it and getting to talk with you tonight is quite an honor, so thanks for being with us. It's a great pleasure, Adam and John. Well, um, you have this, this phenomenal new book coming out. Um, Adam and I got a, got a chance to take a look at it and, uh, and read through it, and it's not only... Just a, a wonderful book about history, which, of course, uh, makes me very happy <laughs> with my, my history background. I loved it. Uh, but it also has a lot of artwork. Uh, you and your daughter did quite, quite an extensive job over a, manner, a number of years uh, taking pictures of um, you know, different depictions of the, the, the resurrection. Um, it's really a phenomenal book. So what, what got you to the point where you decided that this was a topic you wanted to write on and specifically uh, to address uh, what you call... Um, artistic theology, I think, is what you call it. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, a good term. All right, one minor correction. It was my wife, Sarah, of course, was the photographer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. My, no, no, just for your audience. Basically, it was accidental. Usually, when you want to write a book, you get an idea for a book. I talk to my editors, and they go with it like that. This didn't happen like that at all. Sarah and I were, along with Marcus Borg and his wife, Marianne Borg, they had asked us to be joint uh, chairs of expeditions to Turkey in the footsteps of Paul. This is the year 2000. So we were going to Turkey every year, taking 40 people, uh, quote, in the footsteps of Paul, and we were watching Pauline sites. We were not at all watching Byzantine sites, but, you know, you're not going to go there and skip Istanbul because Paul didn't go there, and you're not going to skip Cappadocia because Paul didn't go there. <laughs> so, of course, we had other places as well. So it really was an accidental moment in 2002 in Cappadocia. We're standing outside what they call the, the dark church. And as you may know, these churches are built inside the rock, the tufa. It's a volcanic area, something like the catacombs in Rome, as it were. And you've got miniature Byzantine cathedrals, totally frescoed, and they're built inside the volcanic rock, totally inside, which means you've got to stand outside and take your turn, maybe 10 at a time. And we're sort of reading, this is really casual. We're just sitting, standing there, and we're reading the sign, you know, the telling us what's in there. It's in four languages, Turkish, German, French, and English. And we notice it says, we're reading the English one, of course, it says they're all scenes from the life of Christ, everything what you'd expect. We go to the list, you know, the Annunciation, the, the visitation, the flight into Egypt, all the way down to the crucifixion. And then before you get the next one, say the Ascension, they didn't say the resurrection, which we expected. They used the Greek word anastasis. It's a Greek word composed of ana and stasis, and it means literally an uprising. Mm. 
And there's even an, there's a political edge to stasis in Greek. It could be used for just standing upright from your dinner, but stasis is also a word for rising, <laughs> like in Ireland, Easter rising, which isn't about getting up at all. It's about rising. So we were surprised at that. That was the only thing. You know, mildest curiosity. You get inside, of course, and we can go around and we recognize every single one of the images. The, the nativity looks exactly what you'd expect. The, the uh, baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. If you had no name for them, you'd know what they were, of course, if you knew Christian history or the Bible. Then we see this image right next to the crucifixion. And in Greek, on top of the image itself, it's a fresco. It says, anastasis. Okay, this is the anastasis. But it's not the resurrection we expected. In the West, we usually have Jesus. He's looking magnificent. He's a little bit like, you know, a magnificent uh, athlete coming out of the gym. He's <laughs> rising out of the tomb. The soldiers are cowering down, and they're either all asleep or they're watching. But it's all about Jesus. He's alone. He's solitary. Magnificent, but solitary. In this scene, you have Jesus, and he's rolled magnificently. But in his left hand, he's carrying a ceremonial cross. And he's standing on top of Hades. I'm very deliberately using the Greek word Hades, which is not hell. Hades is the abode of the dead. The person Hades is simply like the prison warden. He's not a nasty guy. He's just got a job to do. He's old and bearded because he's been at this a long time. And Hades is the place of the dead. So this figure of Christ is standing on top of Hades. The gates of Hades are broken down. They're set in a cruciform position like a cross, locks and bolts flying in all directions. And then Christ is reaching back with his right hand, and he's taking Adam and Eve, out of their sepulchers. He's raising the human race, because Adam and Eve, of course, are not just two guys. They are the biblical, the, the biblical antecedents of the human race, and therefore when you have them there, they represent the human race. Mm. So it's not just these two guys he happens to run into. So we're looking at this image and saying to ourselves, again, I don't want to make too much out of this, we're not imagining a book. This is 2002. We're just, I wonder why they do it that way. Why isn't it like we do it our way? But, you know, you're in Cappadocia, which is a landscape like nothing else on earth, and you figure, okay, this is a weird place. Maybe they got a weird theology or a weird iconography. <laughs> so we didn't think too much of it. But then, before we left that May of 2002, we also went to Istanbul, where we saw an even more magnificent I think probably the most magnificent one in the whole world. In the Kora Church, Kora Museum in Istanbul, Christ is doing the same thing. He's standing on top of Hades. But now he's like an equal opportunity <laughs> yanker because he's taking Adam with one hand, Eve with the other, and he's wrenching them out of their sarcophagi. So again, we're saying, okay, now wait a minute. Once is accidental, two is <laughs> coincidence. What's going on? But again, I really want to insist that by the time we got back, even looked at our pictures, this was interesting, not much more. But then we're going back every year to the Middle East, to Eastern Christianity, and we started expanding out of Turkey, and we might go 
to a week to Romania or a week to Serbia or Cyprus or Crete, all over Eastern Christianity, all the way to the Syriac monasteries on the Tigris, very close to a place we couldn't get in now. We were in Syria, in Damascus in, what, 2010, trying to plan a pilgrimage with 40 people in 2011 and realized on March the 1st we were heading into a civil war and had to call it off. But we began to realize, wait a minute, this is the classic traditional image of resurrection for all of Eastern Christianity. Up to the present day, and probably of Eastern Christians, wherever you find them in this country. So that was really the genesis of the, of the book. How is it that the West has this individual resurrection for Jesus alone, and Eastern Christianity has a universal resurrection of the whole human race, hand in hand, as it were, with Christ? So that was the, the, the germ of the book to try and think about that. And again, it took, us, it took us a good 10 years of getting materials before it really sank in, as simply as I've just said it, that this is a huge divide between East and West on the most important iconography and theology of all of Christianity, Easter Sunday. So at that time, I think we're talking about 2013, I proposed to have for one my publishers that we had this idea for a book and that they said they would be willing to make certain that we'd have shiny paper <laughs> so we could put the images, because as you know, we have 140 full-color images, and that we could have them pretty much next to where people were reading rather than, you know, stuck at the back or in the middle, like one of those infuriating uh, inserts that you can't find what you're looking for. <laughs> so we are extremely proud of the book, to be honest with you, because of the production. It's a magnificent piece of art theology, it's not just art history, it's art theology asking what is the theology of these images and how is it different east to west. Mm. So, you, you know, you, talk, you just talked about all the, the beautiful ph photography in the book and everything. It really is just a, a magnificent book. Um, I, I think the, uh, the artwork, especially the um, the oldest churches that you were able to visit, the frescoes are just um, phenomenal um, in this book. But um, I, I think it, since it is such a, a critical part of the book, why why is the artwork? Um, why did you use that as a way to kind of go? Because you started in the book, you go back as far as you can. Because um, obviously, the first question I think most of us would ask is, well, we have these two different depictions. Which one came first? You know, is one older than the other and that mm -hmm. sort of thing? So why is, why is the art portion of it so important? Mm. I'd almost want to put it slightly different, John and Adam. The reason why my wife's name is on the book with me is not, well, you know, it's always nice to keep the wife happy or it's a <laughs> domestic tranquility. Yeah. I had no desire whatsoever, honestly, to write a book about Eastern Christian theology of Easter. That was not at all materials I had read or anything else. It was only when I began to see the massive database that we were gathering. And, you know, usually when we come back after two or three weeks over there, we'd have about nine to ten gigabytes of stuff, everything. Sarah was very good. She'd go into one of these churches and take an image of everything. Because you don't have time when you're in there. You know, half the time it's dark in church and they're hurrying you through or there's a ceremony going on and they don't want you in there. So you don't really have the time 
to even think in there. It was when we got back home and attached our computers, Apple computers, to our big television screen and could look at these images on a giant TV that we began to see, okay, I can read. It says Anastasis. It says Adam. It says Eve. So the first idea, and we really told Harper one, this is not a book illustrated with images. That's perfectly valid, but this is not. This is images explained in text. Images rule the book. So the deal we had to make with them is if they were not willing to do that and just simply wanted some illustrations, then this is not the book we wanted to do. So images came first, and we really began to think then about what I'm going to call visual theology or even artistic theology. What did ordinary people see when they went in and looked at these images, and of course they would be explained in sermons, of course, I'm not saying on that there was no text with them, but the dominant thing is the images. One final example, we were in Belgrade's Serbian Cathedral on the week after Easter Sunday. It was a little bit coincidence. Easter was late, and we were there the week after. And as you went into the cathedral, there was a red carpet all the way from the door towards the iconostasis, and ropes along it, you know, like you have at a Hollywood <laughs> premiere, so that everyone who came in walked through that and down on a little um, lectern, let me call it, facing them was an image of the anastasis, not, not the ancient one, of course, but a modern reproduction. And everyone who walked in touched their forehead to it and then kissed it. I can be honest with you, I just touched my forehead with it. <laughs> <laughs> A bit aware of, <laughs> of hygienic and stuff. But anyway, in other words, this is not something from the year 700 or 1200 or 1400. This is right up to date in the Serbia, that was Belgrade, that weeks after Easter. So it was the image we were really after here. And we wanted people in the book to look at the image. We kind of explain you with a lot of help from art history. I'm very grateful to art historians. Here's what we see. Now, what we want you to do when you've seen enough of them, and we've given you the history of them, and, you know, we do all that stuff, of course. But we want you to think two questions. Here's the first question. Which of these two images, the individual resurrection or the universal resurrection, is in better continuity with the New Testament itself? Or if we could put it kind of crudely, if Paul was asked by one of his Corinthians, could you please draw me what it was like the moment of the resurrection? Don't give me anything about empty tombs. That's all results and consequences and effects. I know all about that stuff. Don't give me apparitions to women and men after. Tell me what I would have seen, just like you explained to me what the crucifixion looked like. You were willing, I'm imagining this. Paul, you drew us a picture of the crucifixion. Draw us a picture of the resurrection. Mm. Would Paul have drawn the Western one, as we have it now, or the Eastern one? And my argument is that in the New Testament, coming from the Jewish sources, Paul, not surprisingly, would have found the Eastern tradition in closer continuity and conformity to the New Testament itself. That's the first question. And the final question is this. If you're looking at an image like this, 
Forget theology for a moment. Adam and Eve, you know who they are, and their names are put on there in case you don't. That's the human race. That's good old Homo sapiens that came out of Africa 70,000 years ago. That's our species. It's our special species. Now, they're shown there. They're being liberated from death by this person, Christ, who kind of is an historic character. At least he's got wounds on his hands and feet. And those wounds didn't come from heaven. They came from Rome. And he's, he's yanking these people out of the sepulcher. And he's trampling down old Hades, death itself. And the question you should ask, and I would ask art historians, what on earth does that mean? Mm. Yep. You say it's mythic, and I have no problem with you saying it's mythic. What claim are you making with this mythic image? Plain language, what does it mean? Before I accept it, reject it, laugh at it, mock it, whatever, just tell me what it means. Mm. So that's the final question of the book and the dominant question, which is, of course, a theological question, a meaning question. What does the consistency of this image, east and west, what does it mean? Um, and does it mean only something to Christians, kind of within their faith, or does it have any message for the public square? Free from the arms of darkness, creation lies, look to the universe inside. Don, I, I didn't even know you were going to end up there, and I, I just, I could listen to you all day. This is just so fascinating. Um, a lot of what we've experienced as we've gone through this podcast journey for the last couple of years is um, there seems to be a real divide um, and a lot of things in matters of faith um, between two kind of ways of thinking. Uh, you know, the factual, did it happen or not kind of way of thinking, and then the, the conversation that revolves around meaning. So right now, you know, obviously we're talking about the resurrection, um, and this is a really fascinating angle to take about the resurrection. But interestingly enough, I, I hear you kind of talking more about the question okay, yeah, not, we're not going to spend time really talking about did this happen or not. You know, that, that's another question maybe for another day. But the question that I hear you talking about, which I think people will find really interesting, is what does it mean? Not, not did it happen or didn't it happen, but okay, what does it mean? And could you help us understand a little bit why that's so important in a culture that's so wrapped, or, wrapped up around um, factual expression or proof, quote unquote? Okay, let me just take an example. If you look at the individual resurrection, Christ coming out of the tomb by himself, a person could say, okay, that could have happened. There are serious scholars who ask if you had a, a tape recorder, if you had a podcast, people there with their machinery, could they have taped that? All right, let's say that's the type of thing that gets Christians into an argument. Of course, it could have happened. If you were there, you'd have seen Jesus coming out. The soldiers saw him, except that they lied. And if you had, uh, well, if you had your TV cameras there, you'd have caught it. Let me not get into that argument. But that argument is totally impossible for the second image. I don't know anyone who would claim that you would see all the tombs that ever were emptied on Easter Sunday morning 
Adam and Eve, meaning all of them. Nobody is claiming that there's two guys got out with Jesus, Adam and Eve. So the question of, is this a metaphor? Is this an image? Can be avoided or debated, if you will, with the individual resurrection? It cannot even be raised, as far as I can imagine. I can't imagine a fundamentalist or a literalist saying, yes, all the tombs were emptied up to that time. Now, let me, could I give you an example, just to get away from Christianity for a moment, in case this bugs people. No, it's great. In the, in the National Museum in Tunis, the Barda Museum, we were there, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and there's a magnificent mosaic. Now, it's a Roman mosaic, so we're not talking Christianity at all. It's a Roman mosaic, probably from a, a floor of a very rich vintner in North Africa, and it's now up in the wall. And what you're looking at is Odysseus, Latin Ulysses. And he's trying to sail home, and the sirens are haunting him and trying to stop him. And he's tied himself to the mast. Now, I'm just describing very briefly the story. Okay, you can look at that, and you can say, well, I wonder, did that really happen? I don't think there were women who were half birds and half women, and they were on an island, and they sang seductive songs to stop. Ulysses going home. This is kind of charming, but come on. Now, let me back up a bit and say how an ancient mind might have looked at that. Homer wrote about the Trojan War, a war in a distant place for 10 years. Then he tells a second story called the Odyssey, which is about how it took Odysseus 10 years to try and get home. Now, I read that straight, you know, from 2,700 years ago. I guess the, the image is, of course, only about 2,000 years old. It, said, it tells me that if you go to a war far from home, you may have terrible troubles getting home again. Mm. I wish we knew that clearly in the Vietnam War, that you don't just go over there and, oh, you have a war, even if you win, in this case, like the Greeks. He has to fight his way across the Mediterranean with all sorts of, you know, seductive or dangerous things. And finally, he does get home. Yep, he gets home. It's a happy ending. But I think if we are unable to decode, or if you want to say to deconstruct, if you will, images, then we have lost one of our human faculties. Now, you could, you're quite free to disagree with the image. You can say, okay, I get the message. I get the message. I disagree with it, fine, but I'm getting the message. So if, if you show, for example, a Christian image and you put on the title of Jesus, Lord, you're putting the title of Caesar on a peasant from Galilee, and that's called high treason. Oh, yeah. So if we can't read this stuff, if we think, oh, did it really happen? Yeah, it really happened that certain people in the first century looked at Jesus and said, basically, this is our Caesar. Mm. That's why he's going to end up dead. The Romans did not crucify people for nonviolence. They crucified people for nonviolent resistance to their system. So I think we have lost half our human faculties if we don't know, 
either to look at an image, and we're not looking at an image because we're on a podcast, so I've been describing an image to you in words, and describing it will have nothing like the effect it will have when you look at it, Mm. because it just looks at you. In a way, it says nothing. It doesn't come out and batter you. It just shows you Adam and Eve being brought by Jesus with, with stressed as the one with the, the wounds and the cross and everything else. So this is the one who died for nonviolent resistance to violence. And the message I'm hearing, in a way, has nothing to do with religion or Christianity. It has to do with human evolution and a warning that the only thing that can save our trajectory of escalatory violence from basically destroying ourselves is nonviolent resistance. Mm -hmm. Now, you're quite free to to disagree with that, of course, but you're not free to say that's not what it's saying, (laughs) because that is what the image is saying. That's why you have Adam and Eve, and why Jesus is always the crucified one with the wounds and the cross and all the rest of it. So you're free to look at the image and say, yep, I get the message, don't believe a word of it. You're not really free to say, oh, this is all about something that happened, and if we were there, we'd see people popping out like Petsatani Phil or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, really, you know, it, it gets absurd at a certain point. And one of the great things about the Eastern tradition, in this case, is that it makes it impossible for you to just debate that. Mm. But you are, you are debating about a metaphor or an image. And it's real because if people start living according to that image, that image creates reality. In the same way to use an absolutely horrible example, a Nazi salute or something like that, all of those are images. If a people and a nation starts living accordingly, they are creating a reality that will destroy them. You can create a reality that destroys you out of an image, or you can create a reality that saves you. I'm not talking about heaven, I'm talking about the earth. Mm. So the challenge that I see from the Eastern vision is how to save the earth from escalatory violence and when I use the term escalatory violence, I simply mean that it only took us 3,000 years to get from the iron sword to the atomic bomb. Okay? That's what I'm talking about, escalatory violence. Yeah. What will, if you look at that trajectory, if you're looking from outer space and saying there's this very interesting species down there and I'm watching what they're doing, and boy, I don't know if they're going to make it at the rate they're going. I don't they know what they're doing. That's the image, I, uh, the warning I get from the the anastasis mm. from Eastern Christianity. I don't get that at all clearly from the Western one. I might be able to dig it out there with give me enough theology, but it doesn't jump out and bite me. Man, one quick sub point while we're still kind of talking about this um, as okay. it relates right back to your book is it just struck me as I was thinking about your book and listening to you talk that you know we take our our western um hyper intellectual you know enlightenment rational um education systems technology uh we take that completely for granted and it, it struck me that um if you were somebody who was trying to wrap your head around religious beliefs or meaning uh in the first century 
images would have been far more useful because who could read? Nobody could read. Yes. I mean, exactly. Im- images communicated theology. And if you look at an image, that image isn't going to communicate facts to you. It's going to communicate meaning. And, and theology deals with meaning, whether you're talking about facts or not. It should be talking about meaning. That's a, that's a gorgeous example. For the first century, let's say 95% of people couldn't read. How are they getting the message, as it were? Well, let me, let me de- describe an image of Caesar. This is the real one I'm describing. It's in the uh, St. Petersburg Museum, the Hermitage. He is seated on a throne. He is almost nude. You know, so if you're a divine, it's apparently very difficult to remember to put on your clothes in the morning, apparently. <laughs> he's kind of got, got a cloak kind of draped across his loins, but he's basically nude. He's just got a rocking body. <laughs> yeah, oh he, oh, he has a rocking body. It's right. He's like a, he's just a, a stud muffin coming out of the gym. Yes, he's beautiful. <laughs> and and his, his, his face is lovely. He's ageless. His hair is beautiful. But in his left hand, he holds the orb of the world. In his right hand, he holds the scepter. You know, the, the, no, I'm sorry. So, but in, his, in his left hand, he holds the scepter. I'm trying to visualize it, the scepter of command, derived from spear, the scepter. And in his right hand, he holds a round white marble ball, and on top of it is a little statue of victory. Now, that, that's kind of a crude description of a magnificent image from the Hermitage Museum in Moscow. Basically, of course, I said Moscow, I meant St. Petersburg, sorry. He is also... You're getting a double message. You would say, wait a minute, this looks like the image of Zeus Olympius, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Olympius where the Olympic Games takes place. There's an image there exactly the same, only bigger. He's got the left hand's got the the scepter of command, the right hand's got the the world, and on top of the world, the orb of the world is the victory with her winged victory. So you're getting a double message looking at Augustus. Of course you're getting the message, he rules the world. Not just the Mediterranean or Italy or Rome, but he rules the world. You know, you could laugh at him and say he doesn't even know beyond the Mediterranean, but let it go. He, he rules the world as far as he's concerned. Mm-hmm. And that makes him the equal of Zeus, the supreme god of the Greeks, and Jupiter. In fact, there's a similar statue of Jupiter just a few bays down from this in the Roman section of the Hermitage. So this is a stunning message. And the Romans would say, you know, if you have troubles, yeah, he's human being. We know he's a human being. He's the divine ruler of the world. And Rome might have said, and no, we're not going to call a council at Nicaea to figure out from Greek philosophy, how Caesar can be human and divine at the same time. If the Greeks don't understand it, the legions will explain it. So Rome sent its messages to the population, not because they were all reading Virgil's Aeneid. The elites did that, of course. That was for the, the aristocracy. They read Virgil's Aeneid and got the message there as well. But everywhere you went in a Roman city, what you are seeing is messages of, I'm going to call it, Roman imperial 
theology. It is not culture. It is not philosophy. It is theology. Because it claims that the gods, in this case, say I, the gods, have established Rome to rule the world. Take a look at this statue. Now, we are used, overused to advertisements. Rome could have learned nothing about advertisement from Madison Avenue. It was already there on its coins, on its temples, on its arcades, on its statues, everywhere. It already had figured out how do you advertise your theology. Well, wow, there's 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 a question I was going to ask you later, but I think it it flows with what you're saying, and Woo, that it's was, that was good stuff. And I, yeah, I want to <laughs> I want to keep you on this this train of thought. Um, so okay. One of the things that I think in a lot of cases, specifically within Western Christianity, that we uh, that we lack while reading scripture is context. Uh, whether we take it for granted or just completely disregard it, specifically amongst um, more of the fundamentalist crowd. Um, and one of the things that I think you're talking about and you talk about in the book as well as, um, what, what these depictions would have meant to these original audiences, whether they be Roman or Jewish sages. And I I would love for you to talk about that. Like how, how important it is to understand the context in which these original viewing audiences or listening audiences would have understood these depictions. Thank you, Adam and John. It's so important that I've, I've, Using a different word, I found that if, when I used to talk about context and text, people would say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they talk about the text and forget the context. And then I tried talking about foreground and background. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get through. Let's forget the background or get over the background so we can get to the foreground. So I started using the word matrix. <laughs> so they wouldn't have a, a double word that could. And I said, matrix is the common knowledge of its own time and place. There you go. It's like, you know, it's like what everyone knows, what everyone takes for granted. If somebody mentions today, for example, supposing somebody says, do you think he tweets too much? Now, probably most people are probably thinking that's not about our kid, that he might be Trump. And, you know, (laughs) we know all about that. And it wouldn't make any difference if you think, well, yes, he does. No, he doesn't. He should do more. It's not a question of judgment, it's a question of understanding. We get it immediately. And if, you know, before the last election, uh, the paper, the New York Times, they had a huge headline with the word Hillary, question mark. We would know immediately it's probably asking, will she win? It's probably not discussing Sir Edmund Hillary getting to the top of Mount, um, what do you call it, the, uh, the mountain. So basically, Matrix is what everyone in a given time and place knows and takes for granted. Now, the problem is, why on earth would we think that taking a Greek text from 2,000 years ago or a Latin text, translating it into English, which we can, of course, do, why would we know the matrix? Because to know the matrix, you have to know what's going on. So as a scholar, then, you read all the Jewish texts and all the the Roman texts and Greek texts, and then you have to go to the sites. You have to get out of your study and see what these places look like. You, you can't appreciate Roman power if you've never stood in somewhere in North Africa inside a Colosseum in the back of beyond, I shouldn't say that, in North Africa, in Tunis. 
You can't understand Roman power if you just hang around Rome. Go to Zygma on the, I think it's on the Euphrates, and see a Roman city now underwater. You have to go back in. They have to go to the museums and look where all the statues are. Finally, then, you get to the point of saying, I'm getting a bit of a sense of the matrix. I'm not going to say I can think like an ancient Rome because that's not possible. But I think I can shut up for a few minutes and look at their statues or their, even their text or whatever and get a feel of what's making them tick. Without matrix, it'd be like me saying, I think I'd like to talk about Martin Luther King Jr., but I don't want to talk any about this American matrix. That's all context and background. We, we skip that stuff. Or I'm going to talk to you about Gandhi. But none of this background context stuff about British imperialism. I just want to talk about Gandhi. The answer is, it can't be done. You're deluding yourself. So to understand Jesus, for example, as being called Lord, Savior of the world, Redeemer from sin, Son of God, God incarnate, the first things you have to know, whether you like it or not, is that before Jesus was ever born, those were the titles of Caesar the Augustus. That's a fact. Now, I'm not saying, mm. oh, they just took his name. No. What they did was said, <laughs> what the Romans recognized immediately was high treason. The one who should really rule the world is not Caesar with his violence, but Christ with his nonviolence. That's an act of treason. If you say it, you know, quietly, you'll get away with it. But pretty soon... There's a reason that the Romans start crucifying or executing the leaders. They, don't, they really don't go in for genocide. The, the Romans didn't do that. But periodically and regularly, leaders get crucified or executed because that's what Rome did with nonviolent resistance to their law and order and their imperial program. So I don't even know how you could begin to discuss the actual Jesus without knowing the Matrix. That's, I, I love it. <laughs> love it. So, Let's go back a little bit because one of the things that that caught me uh, at the very, very beginning of the book that I think it's important to talk about um, that didn't even occur is one of those moments in the in in the Bible where I've read this a million times and it just never occurred to me until somebody uh, in your in your case you put it on paper and I thought oh well, that's that's curious and that is that you talk about the fact that there are a lot of mysterious strange things that are recounted in in Scripture in the Bible and the in the Gospels. And specifically, things that happened surrounding Jesus that are described in great detail, including the ascension and things things like that. But for some odd reason, uh, there's no direct account of the actual resurrection. And so you talk about the difference between um, indirect and direct uh, depictions. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit and and how that kind of flows into uh, the research you ended up doing within the the visual images. 
I'm not even certain it occurred to me, honestly, until I was well into the book. And so, wait a minute. So, let me, give, let me put it as if a story. Supposing you're in the year 400 and you're an, an artist and Constantine the Great, who is uh, now in favor of Christianity, has given you a huge commission for, say, the imperial um, workshop in Constantinople. He wants a copy for his imperial chapel of Matthew's Gospel, and he wants all the major events in the life of Christ to be given a full-page illustration. So, big commission, big money. So, your career is on the line. So, off you start. It's it's real good. You have the nativity. You have the the, uh, the uh, anything you want to see. The the uh, baptism of Jesus. The, the transfiguration is there. You're you're really on a roll. You the uh, entry into Jerusalem, the Last Supper, everything's going splendidly. Crucifixion, that takes a little longer, but you've all the data there, so you got that in. And you're all set now to do the resurrection. It's the next one. And then it strikes you like a thunderbolt. I have all these descriptions, you say to yourself, of women and men at the empty tomb, and of women and men getting uh, visions of the risen Jesus. But those are all effects. They're indirect. Resurrection. They're like the results, the consequences. But I got no picture of the moment itself. Mm. I got Matt saying that the, that the guards at the tomb must have seen it because they go and lie and say they were asleep. But that doesn't give me a description either. So I, maybe I go to the theologians and say, I need a description of the resurrection. And they say, oh boy, you're on your own. And you say, well, but I have no problem with the ascension. You know, I've got a good picture of the ascension in Luke 24 and Acts 1. I, why is there no picture of the resurrection? Now, I'm going to put a sideline here. That is the point where you might begin to wonder why every other incident in the life of Christ, except the most important one, gets a description in the New Testament and therefore a depiction in iconography, except the most important one, which might warn you, if you're thinking, that maybe the historicity of this, or the metaphoricity of this, ain't quite like everything else. Mm. Might make you think, at least, to start to think. But, in other words, we have to understand there is a plethora of indirect descriptions of the resurrection. The women at the tomb, as I said, the apostles at the tomb, the women who get the apparition of Jesus. There's a, I could come up with maybe a dozen different scenes if I wanted to do that. It's almost as if they're kind of conning you. If we give you a dozen indirect scenes of the resurrection, the effects, the results, the consequences, will you not even notice that we skipped the moment itself? And that we never skipped the moment any other time for any other scene, even the transfiguration or the ascension, no matter how mysterious they are. So I think that any that really came up later in the book when I was, and I moved it up front right away. Mm-hmm. It's important. In a minute, that's where we start from. If you don't have a depiction, I mean, don't have a description. Sorry, how do you do a depiction? Well, you have to invent it, and that's why maybe we invented two radically different ones—not three or four or five, but two radically different ones, because each of them is depicting an absence, as it were. Mm. So, 
in in your research because you you do a phenomenal amount of research. You go back to you know uh, potentially the earliest depictions you could find uh, through hundreds of years of of different images. So, did, and this might be an impossible question to answer. It might be something that was lost to antiquity. But did you get any sense for why you know we split off into two different versions or two different depictions? I got a certain amount because when we started thinking about this, the book was going to be totally and exclusively about the Eastern tradition. We weren't even going to mention the Western tradition except saying it's different or something like that. <laughs> then the more we got into it, the first thing that was kind of struck us was, wait a minute, the very first attempt to depict, it's actually on a sarcophagus, so it's, it's a carving, to depict the resurrection is the individual resurrection. The Eastern comes along around the year 700, but by the year 400, there is already a very interesting one on sarcophagi. They seem to come originally from the Rhone Valley. Um, maybe <laughs> Rome wasn't that important in the late 300s. The Rhone Valley might have been more important down around the, where the Rhone meets the Mediterranean. But the best examples now are in the Pio Cristiani Museum of the Vatican Museums. So I'm asking you to imagine the front of a sarcophagus. Um, it has five scenes, nicely arched scenes, proportionately, two to the left, two to the right, and then one in the middle. And no matter how the ones to left and right change in 20 or 30 sarcophagi, the center is going to be the same. Imagine two soldiers standing upright, almost facing one another. One has the head down because he's asleep, <laughs> and the other has the head up because he's looking. In between, actually, is a cross. They're standing on either side, actually, of the cross, of the uh, upright. You don't have any figure of Jesus rising up from it. No figure. What you have is the key row monogram, the CHR, the key row of Christ, surrounded by a wreath of victory. And you also have birds, birds like, let's say, maybe pigeons, eating some of the um, fruit it is sort of a combination of what looks like historical, the soldiers guarding the tomb, but, well, there's no tomb there except it's all stone in any case, and you have the victory shown symbolically, non-figuratively for Jesus, but everything else in the whole sarcophagus has images of Jesus. For example, to the left, he might be showing him being, being um, arrested, and he's right there, you know, he looks like a normal human being, and to the other side, you have him before Pilate, and he's not there symbolically. So the first attempt to really depict the individual resurrection in this case, they were, they were from Constantine, I don't even know whether it's called Constantine, East or West, he's kind of both, I guess. Huh. But they're really, the individual resurrection, so it if you, if you imagine looking at that, I'm, I'm, not, I'm letting on as if I didn't know what happened, <laughs> but I'd almost say to myself, look, this image is not going to last because all other images and stories and depictions have Jesus standing there, you know, with hands and feet and everything else. We're going to have to get him kind of drifting up into the air before these two soldiers or something. And that eventually happens in the West, but it's almost... Oh, about 8.50, before finally, in a Western image, 
Jesus is actually sitting up in the sarcophagus. He's not stepping out yet, but it's like he just woke up. So where am I? So it, the West had to struggle out of its own symbolism because that, after all, was the key role of Constantine and was a sacred uh, emblem from Constantine. And I kind of, it stuck the West for a long time. So by 600, uh, sorry, 700, when the East came up with its image, with a body of Christ, of course, completely, you'd almost say, okay, now, now we got two. If the West doesn't catch up and get a body in there, the, West, the East is going to win. Hmm. But, you know, by the year 1000, the two of them are there. There is an individual resurrection with a body, complete body of Christ. There is a universal with a complete body of Christ. And if I posit myself in the year 1000 and let on, I don't know what happened. I could say either of these could become normative for all of Christianity, or we might come up with some combination. Because in the 15th, 16th century, Russian icons put them together, and the bottom half shows Christ raising Adam and Eve and all the rest of it. And then it's nicely linked to him coming out of the, the tomb in the upper half. So you have the Eastern tradition in the bottom half, the Western tradition in the top half, and they're all happily combined. So I think what actually happened was in 1015 and exacerbated tremendously in 1215 after the, the Fourth Crusade, the Latins destroyed Constantinople. Each side looked at the other, and maybe the East looked especially at the West as it had every right to do, and said, you go your way. We want nothing to do with you. We, we maintain our own tradition. We will not actually take the individual. So I think the split between Eastern and Western Christianity dictated maybe the moment of decision. And then, of course, the whole Western emphasis on the individual rather than the collectivity. Mm. And all the way to our superhero saves the world all alone may have played into it as we went into the Renaissance and we got these magnificent images painted by, you know, Titian and Rubens with the soldiers down at the bottom and Jesus arising magnificently from the tomb. But it took a while for it to happen. It didn't happen immediately. It's amazing. Um, one of the things that kind of off, off, off the topic that we're currently on a little bit, but I, I found extremely fascinating. It kind of took me back to my, um, my youth. I was born and raised in a, you know, ELC, a Lutheran church. And, and every week we, we spoke the apostles creed and, and, uh, I noticed, uh, but wasn't sure that the, the purpose, the purpose of it, the, the why they made the change. But at some point in, in time, uh, the apostles creed changed from, you know, Jesus, um, was, was crucified uh, died and was buried, descended into hell, descended to hell, ah. changed to descended to, to the dead. And yeah. that, that popped into my brain as I was reading your book, um, because you mm-hmm. mentioned that in uh, many of these depictions were, you know, as you said, Christ is kind of standing with one foot on Hades, the gatekeeper uh, of the land of the dead. That, that comes up a lot. So you, you kind of talk about the fact that it's not, he's not coming up out of hell. Uh, and, and you, you kind of talk about um, how that, had a lot to do with the fact that there was a, a bad translation or, or something of that, of that sort. 
Yes, what happened was when the West really decided, you know, and around the year 1000, that, okay, our traditional image, our official image, as it were, from now on is going to be the individual resurrection. What were they going to do with this other image, which had been around for, you know, 300 years, and it didn't suddenly disappear and was all over Western churches? It wasn't like, well, they've never seen this one, so we'd have no problem. The Byzantine churches were in Italy, uh, so... This was a well-known image. It was, it was used in plays of crucifixion, passion plays. So what they did was, and it was a disastrous conclusion, they translated Greek Hades into Latin hell and said he descended into hell. That's the way it says in the Apostles' Creed, actually. And then immediately that raised, of course, a huge theological issue. Are you telling me then that Jesus went down into hell and emptied it on Easter Sunday. That goes back to the year 500 when Bishop Evodius wrote to Bishop Augustine of Hippo with this question which had just struck him. Wait a minute. If Jesus emptied hell, he's now thinking in Latin, emptied hell on Easter Sunday, maybe there'll be nobody in hell on the last day. And poor Augustine has to work like heck three or four pages, <laughs> and he can just, and he, he really doesn't like this question. Oh, boy, he doesn't like this. <laughs> and he tries to argue, that, oh, no, 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 no. The only ones who came out with Christ were some very, very holy prophets who had foretold his coming and recognized him when he popped down to hell. So they got out with him. And, of course, anyone would say, excuse me, Augustine, excuse me, excuse me. We're talking about Adam and Eve. They ain't just prophets. But finally, Augustine, exasperated, says, I wish nobody had ever said this, descended into hell stuff. I wish they simply said, Christ ascended into Abraham's bosom. Wow. So that's the problem that the West stuck itself with by translating Hades into hell. And then, of course, the next thing is that poor old Hades, who is just a, you know, a garage and a a doorkeeper doing his job becomes the evil character Satan, who is not there at all. And then you, your theology gets extremely difficult because you're trying to explain. Dante then has to explain, well, who, who got out of hell? I thought nobody got out of hell. If Jesus let a couple of them out, according to Matthew, well, if you ever get out, why can't others get out? And so Dante asks that fabulous question in the Divine Comedy, if there is today a Hindu by the Ganges and he's never heard of Christ, do you mean he's going into hell for all eternity? And that's where the theology gets very, very dicey because they have misunderstood the image and tried to fix it up as Christ going down to hell, as it were, to keep him busy on Holy Saturday before he arises alone on Easter Sunday. It just doesn't work. Oh, man, it gets tricky. We, <laughs> we have noticed. <laughs> it gets super, super tricky. The, the major thing I would ask in summary of people to the book, suspend anything for a moment about any decisions and just look at these images. There's enough of them there. We take you through uh, 500 years from the year 700 to the year 1200, where they're 
you know, developing the image. After that, you're just going to get copies. If you go into a, a, a Eastern Christian church today and see one of these images, I'm going to say that's type 1, type 2, type 3, type 4, you know. The models are all set up. Just look at them and ask yourself, what message am I getting from this? That's all. Mm. If they could do that, like they might get in the same way as if they were going to a Roman museum and they're looking at that statue, as I said, with the orb in his right hand and the victory over it. You can say, I'm getting a message and I refuse the message, by all means. I'm not saying that you get a message and you have to accept it. But if you put this in its matrix, you're going to say, this is the message I'm getting. Now I am free for the first time to accept or reject. Because before that, you weren't even getting the message. They might, have been, might as well have been talking to you in Serbian. And if somebody talks to me in Serbian, all I can say is, uh, I don't get it. Yeah. I can't say I disagree or I agree. So the images rule in this book and let them rule your imagination until you see what you think. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful way to, I think, uh, to, to wrap our, our time up together. Um, the book is called Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. Uh, what's the best way for people to go out and get a copy of this and to uh, stay on top of what, what, what you're up to? Well, besides the ordinary ways, of course, of going to Amazon or anywhere like that. Oh, by the way, I'm going to do it. This is not a commercial, but because of 140 images in this book, I really would recommend, I don't know if I should say, don't get Kindle. I, I use Kindle myself. I have a lovely Kindle Oasis. But I don't know when the images are full-color images, that, you know, all through the book. I don't know how it will work on Kindle. Maybe I shouldn't say this because I haven't seen it. <laughs> but think at least, is this a book I want to get the hard cover? For, rather than the Kindle. Just think about it. Make your decision on, on that. Um, they can go, of course, to our website. It's www.mynamejohndominicrossen.com, and there's a landing site right there at, on the website that will tell them where to get the book in all the various ways. But the obvious, any way they can do it, they can get it from Amazon or from any of the other booksellers, or they can get it to Harper, of course. But probably the easiest way, my Facebook has the information on it. My um, webpage has the information on it. So all the ways you normally get it, you should be able to find it. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolute honor and a privilege for us to, uh, to, to have some uh, uh, few moments to speak with you um, and just pick your brain about this. this. The book is absolutely beautiful. I can't recommend it enough. I, I devoured it in probably two days. So, um, so everybody should go out and get it. Um, and, and thank you so much for, for spending an hour with us tonight. Some really good juice, Thanks, Dom. Thank this, you, was Adam. A, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you both and good night. Good night. You're all I know. You're all that I see You're all that I am Founded by the sun Followed by the moon Loneliness too soon Happy Easter, John. God, that was so
so fun. That was so Easter worthy. I, I feel like I feel like people have to they should buy the book and then re-listen to this a second time as as we go through and, and talk about it. Because we had the benefit of we had a, they sent us a beautiful copy. Um, they sent us actually a, an original copy that was in black and white, and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool." Yeah, like really enjoyed it as I was reading through it. And then um, after the fact, they sent us um, the finished version because uh, I, I think it comes out. I don't know if it's already come out yet. Yeah, I think it's out. Um, yeah, there you go. So I think it just came out. So yeah, it just came out. So they sent us the full the full finished up uh, version that's in full color. And I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, holy cow, this thing's even more beautiful than the, the original version that we had. Um, oh, yeah, it's out. But, like, it, it's, there's something about, like, he, I, I love how he refers to it as uh, visual theology. Yes. Because it's like, there's, Come on. I mean, what, how else do you communicate to a population of people who uh, predominantly were illiterate at the time? That, that was my favorite takeaway from this entire thing. Like we are so arrogant. I think I tweeted the night of this interview when we, cause it was a little while ago and I, cause I was dumbfounded after this conversation with John freaking Dominic freaking cross. And I was dumbfounded at the prospect of my, my, my taking for granted my literary privileged position. The fact that I take reading for granted and I so associate any spiritual development or epiphany or realization with the ability to read or be near somebody who is reading to you or something like that to some kind of uh, way of some privileged way of getting information. Whereas for most of, of, of human history, specifically around this time, people could not read. And so artists were incredibly important. And this history of the resurrection laid out in this book, as you just heard in this episode, is astonishing. Yeah. It's astonishing. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating, too, for, for the other history nerds out there who, um, you know, the, just this division um, in, the, in the church, the early church, between the S, the S, I don't, what am I saying? <laughs> the East and the West. I just made up a new direction. I gotcha. I was uh, there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> But like this division between the East and the West, and not only that, but like it really comes full circle uh, when when you look at the um, the original work of Jacques Derrida, who coined our our name, um, and his whole uh, um, argument, you know, when it comes to deconstruction and textual textual criticism, mm-hmm. and how um, text or or language in and of itself is inherently uh, unstable. And evolves and changes over time, and, right. and it becomes very difficult, especially the further you are removed from uh, the original author, right. to determine what that original author's intent was behind yeah. it. As Just we, look at you, I've been reading a lot of it today. I'm I mean, trying to prep for our live show, man. Oh my gosh, dude! <laughs> I mean, you just like. I could go all day on what you just said, but I'm not going to because we're promising to keep these intros and outros shorter. <laughs> we're just going to have to save my I'm response so for the live show. Yeah. But thank you for just giving my my nerd a little little house your father. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Love it. Oh, so good. Love so I, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, as always, the point and the purpose of this show is to get us all to chill out and just enjoy this and listen. And it's not meant to get you to believe this or get you to believe that or whatever. It's just just listen, just enjoy it. Yeah. It's perspectives are beautiful. Even the ones we disagree with have beauty. You don't have to agree with everything somebody says to agree with anything 
somebody says. And with that, we will leave you. Buy tickets for Denver. Mm-hmm. Get there by boat, train, automobile, yeah, bicycle, pogo stick, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> whatever. Because we would love to see you and hang out with you. But for now, happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. Um, as, uh, go back and listen to last year's episode on the resurrection. Resurrection is oh, with sweet Alexander, Alexander freaking Shia, if you want uh, a great follow-up to this episode. And uh, we love you guys. We're your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. Do you got anything else? No. Great. Then I'm John Williamson. <laughs> Happy Easter. Boom shakalaka. <laughs> I think I'll write another song Try to understand what's wrong Find a way to make a change In my mind rearrange Or I can waste another day And watch the moment fade away When the lights go out I feed the doubt The dealer takes control If I let him in We can both begin To live a life that's whole Drifting through the speed Summer grass Gives me freedom From the past See the diamonds In the sky Weave the darkness Of the night Let the stillness In the air Hold the moon If I live